2: The Pac-12 has a football schedule. Stanford men's basketball has its first one and done. And the Pac-12 may have a mutiny brewing. We have a lot of ground to cover here on this episode of the TreeCast with Troy Clarity, presented by the Believe Podcast Network. Glad you're with us on Wednesday, August 5th, 2020. I'm Troy Clarity. We got a lot to do today. So we're not going to spend a whole lot of time with pleasantries. We are going to dive right into it. Coming up, our big chat will be featuring a familiar face to college football fans as he's been calling football games for almost 25 years for ESPN. And he's a Stanford guy too. Rod Gilmore. Really looking forward to getting his thoughts on the headlines that we have seen throughout college football over the past few days putting his uh, law degree to work (laughs) in some respect and also looking back on his days back with stanford football which was i I think a pretty interesting time to be a stanford football player so we'll talk to rod gilmore coming up uh, later on in the show plus we'll start you off with three things you need to know around stanford athletics and one of those things will have help From Stanford Men's Basketball Color Analyst on the Cardinal Sports Network and good all-around dude, John Platt, who has seen more Stanford Men's Basketball than anybody has, I'd imagine, over the last 25 years. So thanks for joining us. I'm Troy Clarity. On Twitter, you can follow me at Troy Clarity. Last name is spelled C-L-A-R-D-Y, at Troy Clarity. You've got thoughts and reaction to the show. I welcome them, as always. Hashtag TreeCast. You got ideas for content? I welcome those, too. Hashtag TreeCast via Twitter. That by far is the best place for uh, me to uh, ensure that I see your thoughts and uh, what you have on your mind. Proud to have been following Stanford sports for the last 27 years. Year number 28 promises to be intriguing on a lot of different levels. So looking forward to getting into that. And uh, now that we have a Pac-12 football schedule and we're getting closer to getting a uh, fall sports schedule, Looking forward to resuming my duties with Pac-12 Network play-by-play. So, a lot on the table for the horizon, but there's a lot we got to talk about right here and now. Three things you need to know around Stanford athletics. Let's dive into it with number one. The Pac-12 football schedule is out. It was released on Friday, and as we thought it would be, it's only a 10-game slate featuring conference-only opponents, and it starts September 26th. Now for Stanford, they open up at Washington, up in Seattle on September the 26th, then at Arizona State the next week. Home opener on October 10th against USC, a bye week, and then big game at Cal October 24th. That's the first non-November big game since 2012. Heck of a start for Stanford. Then after that, a quick turnaround as they host Washington State on Friday, October the 30th, at UCLA November the 7th, back-to-back home games the following two weeks against Oregon State and Colorado. At Oregon, November the 28th, and then the season finale at home against Arizona on December the 5th. Pac-12 championship will not be held in Las Vegas at the Raiders' new stadium this year, but it'll still be a home-hosted site like it was when the Pac-12 championship game uh, game began for its first few years and Stanford hosted after the 2013 season, after the 2012 season, rather. That game is scheduled for December 19th. Now, during Friday's Pac-12 media teleconference announcing the schedule, Stanford head coach David Shaw, a participant In that teleconference, he said he's finally happy to know the when and the where. Yeah, the hardest thing about being a football coach right now is not having answers for your your, your student-athletes and their parents. And um, putting a schedule together now, we can start having some more of those answers for when we start
3: training camp, what our next few weeks are going to be like.
2: That's David Shaw on Friday. And there's also a bit of flexibility built in for obvious reasons with no game scheduled on December the 12th, but games can go there if necessary. And uh, every team with an early bye week as well. So uh, usually the first couple of games in everybody's uh, schedule uh, can be moved around, pushed back until later if need be. So there's some flexibility there uh, for every team in the Pac-12. The conference has a football schedule. Now, will it be played? Pac-12 Commissioner Larry Scott's response.
0: I don't know. I think we are all trying to take a step at a time. Uh, we are cautiously optimistic sitting here today. But as Dr. Ackerman mentioned that we've tried to reinforce, there are elements outside our control that are going to have a lot of influence
2: well and and that was the most honest moment of the entire teleconference to me from friday and really quite honestly that's the only correct answer who knows if this is all going to get pulled off let's get to number what about the fall olympic sports When will Stanford women's soccer and women's volleyball begin defending their national titles? When will Stanford men's soccer take the pitch again? What about cross country? Well, schedules for the fall Olympic sports were not announced with football slate last Friday, but Larry Scott said that schedules for those sports were days away. And since that was days ago, there's a slight chance that those schedules might be out by the time you hear this. We do know that the Pac-12 Fall Olympic Sports will also do conference-only competition and that it will fire up no earlier than the weekend of September the 26th. Let's finish it up with number three. And another news item that was made official on Friday. Stanford's Tyrell Terry is staying in the upcoming NBA draft, becoming the first one-and-done in Cardinal men's basketball history. Just using up one year of eligibility, before deciding to turn pro and heading to the NBA. Terry averaged 14.6 points per game, shot 89% from the free throw line, and was named All-Pac-12 and All-Freshman. And his stock even kept going up after this season. Terry explained how during his media teleconference on Monday.
3: You know, when I first declared for the draft, um, you know, I was projected to go, you know, mid to late second round. And so,
1: um, as time kind of went on, you know, I had that IQ test. Um, I kind of boosted my stock a little bit. And so now, um, you know, people are talking first round, you know, early second. And so. Um, it's been kind of a roller coaster in that
2: sense. Well, for more on this, let us chat with a guy who has seen more Stanford men's basketball I would imagine than anybody over the last 25 years. You hear him all the time. Color analyst on Stanford men's basketball broadcasts and the sideline reporter for Stanford football on the Cardinal Sports Network. Always good to see my man, John Platt. John, appreciate the time. Thanks a bunch. And let's get right into it. Your thoughts, Tyrell Terry diving into the nba what can he bring to the next level
3: uh well i think he's he's go, he's going to be at the next level and uh i think there's a couple of organizations probably that are that are on him um you know the obvious thing is shooting um he had a terrific freshman year shooting the basketball over over 40 percent from three and there were there were moments where uh troy you know you could just sort of see the nba skill level um consistency, but, but there, were, there were those moments, I'm thinking of the first few minutes against Oklahoma and Kansas City where, um, you know, there was, there was flow. The NBA is a, is a flow game. And if you, you know, with, with speed and length and, and size and all that, and if you can sort of do your thing with, within that flow um, and, and tie in that game, I want to remember it was like two or three threes in the first four or five minutes or something like that. Um, and it was, it was effortless and it was various points, uh, beyond the arc, it wasn't just catch and shoot. He, he, could score, he can score the ball in a variety of ways. I, I think the NBA will be patient with him, you know, physically, so, he, so that he, he can grow up physically, but I I am I'm excited about his, his future. I'm, I'm excited that, for the reflection on Stanford that this is, um, but I, I expect that he's gonna make the most of it. He seems structured at a young age, and he knows what he wants, and I think he's gonna make the most of it. What's your Tyrell Terry moment at Stanford? There was that home game this year where he was on a bit of a roll scoring-wise, and uh, at the end of, a, of another one of his scoring flurries, he hit a jump shot, I want to say it was right across from us on our broadcast table on the student side, right near the, where they used to call the hash, it was a three, and it went in, the crowd went crazy, and he shrugged his shoulders, sort of like Michael did in the 1992 uh, <laughs> EA Finals. Uh, he, Ty was was that hot? And it wasn't an it wasn't an arrogant. I don't think he was trying to mimic Mike. I think he was, I think it was, you know, uh, I'm hot and I. Not that I want to apologize for it, but this is kind of what you do when you're, you're hitting all your shots and it's effortless and you don't want to, don't want to strut too much down court. You 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 be like Mike and that's what that's what Ty was. All right, as we wrap this up here.
2: Trajectory for Stanford men's basketball. That program seems to be going up and up and up at a very nice clip. Uh, Terrific recruiting class coming in. Uh, Sorts of all sorts of excitement. Jared Hass and the coaching staff seem to be doing uh, uh, terrific things. How excited are you for the next time Stanford men's hoops takes the court?
3: Well, you know, whenever it will be. Yeah. We've got got the the big hurdle that starts with P. I'm I'm, I'm extreme. I'm extremely excited. I, I think. This freshman group, well, first of all, let's start with the core returnees uh, because I have a bias for seniors and upperclassmen and you got, you know, Dajon and and Oscar returning sort of as as centerpieces for your veterans and and, and accomplished players in different ways and and room to grow uh, in different ways. Uh, Then you you had Bryce and and Spencer Jones who who are returning starters as well. So that's a great core. And I, I love the, I love the, the focus, the, the, the fact that they're thinking about being better and that they're a competitive uh, young man. And they, they won 20 games this year, so that, that, that speaks a lot. But then you add this group of freshmen. I mean, Troy, sure, you you could you could have a, make a starting five out of, out of these guys. I mean, they almost fit together that, that well. Um, and I, I just, uh, obviously, Zaire Williams is a centerpiece because he's a top five, top seven recruit in the country, and Stanford's never had at that and that was that was a, just a, a great win for him and his family and, and for stanford but some of the other guys uh, can really play if you look at their at their video online uh you know max mural and noah tates and, and brandon angel and even the the young man michael o'connell the lacrosse superstar who by the way is i kind of is good in basketball and, and he really wants to, to play basketball i mean he's These kids, I think Coach House said, you know, competitive spirit uh, can defend multiple positions and can score score the ball. And they all can. And um you just I mean, multiple of them are going to be significant contributors. Um and I, I Stanford's very, the coaching staff should be saluted and they're very deserving of the top 15 or whatever it is, ranking group that that these incoming freshmen are. I can't wait to see them and the returnees play.
2: Looking forward to seeing all the pieces coming together. And I know this, when Maples Pavilion is living, breathing and jumping, man, there are no better places to be on the planet. I know John Platts can't wait. And I thank him for joining us here on the TreeCast, breaking down Tyrell Terry, and Stanford Men's Basketball. John, thanks so much. Appreciate the time. Can't wait Troy, to see thanks. you again soon. Troy, thanks for having me, and I love the TreeCast. I thank you, John. The TreeCast loves you, too. Those are three things. ESPN's Rod Gilmore will join us in a few minutes or so, but uh, the big news in the Pac-12 this week has been the surfacing of the Pac-12 unity movement among football players in particular who are leading the way for this movement with the hashtag WeAreUnited. And over the weekend, they issued some conditions under which they will play this upcoming season and said they will opt out of the season if those conditions are not met. It's a wide-ranging list covering COVID-19 concerns with protections and and uniform standards up and down the conference, Uh, financial issues with revenue sharing of 50% with student-athletes and a 2% commitment uh, from the Pac-12 of revenues uh, towards uh, social justice issues, more on that in a second, and drastically reduced pay for executives and administrators, uh, medical expenses, scholarship durations, transfers, and fighting racial inequality. Now it's worth noting that the Pac-12 was already ahead of the curve on a few of these things that were on um, the list of these student athletes as far as the conditions that they will that they'll be playing the upcoming season under. Pac-12 already working to address many of those issues. You might remember we had Pac-12 COO and Deputy Commissioner uh, Jamie Zaninovich on the June 17th edition of the Tree Cast. Wide-ranging chat with him and and he went into a few of those things that were that were on the table for him and you might remember I specifically asked him what are you excited about in the weeks ahead and he said hey we've got some exciting things happening. Happening, as, far as, as far as social justice and fighting racial inequality and as far as those things are concerned. And look, the Pac-12 in the immediate wake of George Floyd and the civil unrest that occurred nationwide uh, as a result of that incident and of George Floyd's death in Minneapolis, Pac-12 was in front, I think, of the other Power Five conferences as far as getting out their messaging. Uh, standing behind social justice initiatives and uh, reminding everyone that, hey, Jackie Robinson, he was a UCLA guy, so we've been a bit of ahead of the curve on uh, social justice and racial ine- fighting against uh, racial in- inequality uh, for the better part of seven decades now. So go back to that chat with Jamie Zaninovich that we had with him back in mid-June. And good for the Pac-12 for being proactive in some respects on this, and good for the student-athletes who – are looking for a bigger piece of the pie and looking for a, a better seat at the table, so to speak. And, and the Pac-12 has done well with, with allowing students to be a piece of the puzzle uh, and, 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 and to let them in on, on decision-making. So it's not like these demands are completely foreign and completely antithetical to what the Pac-12 has been all about. Good for the conference and good for the student-athletes for speaking up. But as of right now, all of this is just words. It's just words. Let's see how far those student-athletes are willing to go to turn those words into action. If they're willing to opt out, if all of those demands are met, okay, they're willing to pay that, pi- that price. I, I stand behind them 100%. If the Pac-12, who whom, They put together, they announced uh, a couple weeks after Jamie Zaninovich and I talked, uh, they announced a task force and uh, some more uh, committees to uh, help fight racial inequality. Good steps, good steps. Is it action? That that could be debatable in in some circles, but let's see how far the Pac-12 is willing to go to turn what's largely been words and what's largely been rhetoric into full on action. There is a tremendous difference, and hopefully, this lesson is being reinforced by some things that we have seen over the past few years. That there is a tremendous difference between what people say and what people do. What people say gets a lot of notice, and look, I'm in the talk business, I'm in the media business. And I think that the media is, in general, more focused on what people say than what people do. And obviously, this story has gotten plenty of notice nationwide, originating in the Pac-12, and ripples already starting to be, be felt in other conferences across the country. But right now, for the most part, it's just words. It's just words. What will the actions resulting from this be? Along those lines, I want to bring in our very special guest for this week's TreeCast and the guy who I always enjoy catching up with, honored whenever he is able to do so. As we go through and navigate the unity movement in the Pac-12, and as we sink our teeth into a Pac-12 schedule that we hope gets played in its entirety, and oh, by the way, as Stanford football tries to figure out a way to get on the field, and to rebound from 4-8 and last year. What do we need to know? What does it all mean? Where does it all stand? Perfect time to welcome in our special guest for this week's TreeCast, an ESPN college football analyst since 1996, and a former Stanford football player himself, class of 1982 even. Always great to catch up with the one and only Rod Gilmore. Rod, thanks a bunch. Always appreciate the time. How you doing?
1: I'm doing fine. Troy, always great to catch up with you. How you feeling?
2: I'm good. I'm good. Just kind of in the holding pattern like I'm sure we all are. Fingers crossed hoping that things that, that things get off safely and responsibly and and, and on time in, in an ideal world. Uh, Let's start here. We'll get to the schedule and your your knee-jerk thoughts on that here coming up in a few moments or so, but uh, the bigger news this week so far seems to be uh, the Pac-12 Players United movement uh, that came out over the weekend with uh, student-athletes from most of the teams, USC, Colorado, Utah, not represented, it seemed, um, in the initial uh, portion of that movement, but Student athletes pushing for mandatory COVID-19 safety standards, increased commitment to social justice and fighting racial inequality and and revenue sharing uh, among student athletes, among other things. What do you make of all this? And when you when you initially saw this, what was your what was your first reaction to it?
1: Well, there's a lot to unpack with with all of that. Um, You know, this it did not catch me by surprise. It didn't catch a number of people by surprise. It's the sort of thing that has been talked about for the last couple of weeks or so. Uh, a lot of players were aware of it. I think a number of coaches were aware of it. So the fact they came out with something was not a surprise. But let, let me step back for a second and say, first and foremost, my reaction was that I applaud the players. I mean, I'm proud of the players for, you know, really taking part and participating um, in their, their first amendment you know, rights and in their, freedom of association rights, uh, and really doing what college students you know, should do. They should get involved with their school. They should get involved with their community uh, and assert and try and change things they don't think are right Be heard from. And in this particular area, college football is, is, is the one area that we don't hear from players enough. Things are sort of handed down to them. So in, in that sense, I was really pleased that they participated and, and taken, a, taken a role on. Um, as far as their manifesto goes, I, you can call it something else, list of demands, whatever you like. Um, I thought it was a little complicated and a little too confusing for the average person. I, I thought it was too lengthy. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of things in there. I think that their, their key message and some of the players have subsequently admitted this, that what they really wanted to focus on was the health and safety of trying to play during the middle of a pandemic, number one. And then secondly, really trying to have an impact on social justice and systemic racism. Those were the two things that they were really trying to get to. And the other things, uh, particularly the revenue sharing were things that they wanted to get out there and they did not realize that their, their central message would get overwhelmed by the notion of trying to share money or to get a get a bigger share of, of money. So. Um, in that sense, I think the, the execution in terms of the length and everything, too much, too complex, uh, the, the, the goal, the right goal, I think we're going to hear from other players and other conferences. Mm-hmm. I, I believe there are other groups that are, that are getting together uh, and that they will speak at some point. I expect that they will be a little bit more targeted than the Pac-12. I think their focus will be on the pandemic and the health and safety issues with that Um, and also uh, social justice and I think the other items that are listed there are things that have been on the table for a long time a lot of us have talked about players have been complaining about for a long time um, the urgency is with the pandemic but when you talk about things like the the one one one-time transfer uh, that's been out there for a while and it's the result of coaches having abused the transfer process not allowing players to choose where they want to go, giving them a list of 20, 30 schools where they couldn't go. Uh, the name, image, and likeness is something that should have been resolved a long time ago. I like think Most coaches are now on board saying they, they're behind it. The NCAA is dragging its feet. You've got legislatures in various states saying they want it. The, the fact that it hasn't been done yet, uh, that, that's another easy gimme. I can see the conference saying, yep, we want to get behind that and do that. Uh, even on the medical front, Pac-12 is better than other places. Uh, but given the the uncertainty about the, about COVID-19 and the lasting impacts, the fact that players want coverage longer than four years as they currently have uh, makes sense. I think Stanford is already providing more than that. I think Stanford mm-hmm. at least at six years or more. So some of those things uh, will be easy things to get that will be probably 80, 85 percent, you know, compatible with what the conference wants to do. Um, the pandemic issue, though, is, is, is really sort of critical to everyone and it can't be a monetary issue. Uh, we've seen so far that, that the gold standard is what is happening in the NBA. Quarantine everybody, spend hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to make it all work, test everybody every day. We know that's working. Everything else, Major League Baseball, uh, the NFL, uh, we're not certain about any of those things whether they work. And we've seen over the summer with college football, the systems in place are inconsistent. Players are at risk. Uh, you know, Rutgers shut down just the other day. Northwestern mm-hmm. shut down uh, today. Over the summer, we had sixty-three hundred cases. We had 15, 16 programs interrupt their voluntary workouts. So we we have this system where uh, players are at risk, and they don't know what the testing is, and if if they play an opponent, if the testing is the same. So there are these issues that they have every right to complain about and to say, let's get some consistency and make sure that, that we're okay. Separate and apart from the issue of, should we play? If we're going to be out there, let's at least have the testing work so that we know that we're in a safe environment. So I, I think that's that's fair. I'm all behind them on that. Um, and I think the conference will be too. It's a cost issue for probably each and every school to try and test as much as they need to. So. Um, That may be an
2: issue. Yeah, and Larry Scott's response to this has been, hey, I'd I'd love to sit down and chat uh, with the student-athletes and uh, address some of their concerns and address some of their uh, conditions as well. So kudos to to him for standing up like that when he could have very easily have said, hey, you know what, that's cool. (laughs) It's an interesting list you have there. We're going to press on and play on to the best of our ability this upcoming fall. So kudos to Larry Scott on that. And, And kind of along those lines in how the adults have been acting throughout all this, One of the things I found interesting over the course of the last couple of months is how some coaches have been in the spotlight with how they have reacted to things. Nick Rolovich from Washington State, I was really disappointed to see this story come out because Rolovich, I mean, my gosh, they struck so many of the right notes in rolling him out to the community, did just about everything right in bringing him up to Washington State and making him a part of the Pullman community. And then that phone call to his receiver, Cassidy Woods, gets publicized saying that if you are a part of this unity movement, then that might affect some things with you going forward as far as playing time is concerned. And a lot of that goodwill may have very well been undone. Steve Adazio at Colorado State, bombshell story coming out on Tuesday afternoon about he encouraged his players to ignore COVID-19 symptoms. And of course, Mike Gundy with his struggles a couple of months ago or so. Uh, Ron, if you were advising some of these head coaches in how to navigate through some challenges and to perhaps change their perspective on on how they've worked, because they're addressing some things they've never had to deal with before, at least not in the public forum anyway, how how would you advise these head coaches to proceed going forward?
1: Well, hopefully um, they're they're getting uh, what I'm about to say. (laughs) I I I hope they've heard it from somewhere else already. uh, and, And that is... One, this has been coming for a long time. Uh, 2020 is the sea change event in college athletics, but the player frustration, the player concerns have been there for a long time. And the head coach who now believes that he can continue to operate uh, his program uh, with an iron fist is a head coach who is not going to survive much longer. It's time for coaches to realize that they've got to work in partnership with their players Their players, for lack of a better word, are woke to a lot of issues. Um, They want to be uh, as active uh, in Black Lives Matter uh, and uh, systemic racism and pushing for change as their fellow students. They want those things to apply in their own program as well. So they wanna help create the culture in which that that they play and in which they work or study. They want all those things to change. And for a coach who uh, doesn't appreciate that and thinks that we're not gonna have free speech in my program we're not gonna have you getting involved in protests and the like because those things are distractions those coaches uh, are gonna find it a tough tough road to hope and they have to understand too that players um, even those that, that you want to give a little push and a kick to have to be treated with respect you're, you're not going to be able to get away with some of the things that a lot of us endured over the years as players where coaches made jokes or or made comments that you thought, hey, this is too heavy handed, I don't want that. Those days are gone. This is a sea change event and it's been created by the events outside of college football and inside. You know, as we watched police brutality, we watched George Floyd for eight minutes and 46 seconds die or be killed by the police. Um, We watched other matters. Uh, go unaddressed in police brutality and and systemic racism, that impacted the players as well. And the players are trying to have an impact on their environment and the things that they put up with for the last several years, they're no longer willing to do that. You may recall in 2015, we had Missouri Mm -hmm. issue a boycott because of racial problems on campus and racial incidents that, you know, they decided to support their student body with that. So that, that's, not a, that's not a surprise. This has been coming for a while. This is the first time that we've had it so widespread where players have organized beyond their team to do something like this. Won't be the last time. This is, this is where we are now. Um, so, uh, and players are speaking up. We've got this, this era of player empowerment. Uh, I mean, who would have thought that it was only gonna take a football player in the SEC standing up and saying, the Confederate flag, if we don't remove it from our state flag, I'm not playing, and he was the driving force behind change there. And that you mentioned Mike Gundy um, over at Oklahoma State. Well, it took uh, Chuck Hubbard, uh, Chew Hubbard at um, uh, at uh, the uh, Oklahoma State uh, place to stand up and say, "Hey, you're not being good to us. You're 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 supporting someone who is anti the things of a lot of your black players here." So. Uh, it, it's a sea change event. This is a year players, uh, coaches have to understand and respect that and adapt to it. And if they don't adapt to it, uh, they're probably not going to be long for those places. Uh,
2: the coronavirus runs everything right now, inside and outside of college football. There are a lot of concerns. You've talked about it with the student athletes. I'm sure there are a lot of concerns with everyone um, involved with college football, including yourself. Let's face it. You've you've been dealing with uh, your, your, your health for the past few years. Um, a- how have you been through this? And B, what are your concerns about coronavirus and college football and how those two worlds mesh right now?
1: Yeah, well, um, I've had uh, multiple myeloma since uh, uh, well for four years now. It's uh, a blood cancer, and so I fall into that category of the, the high risk person. You know that you say, well, you know, this person is more likely to be impacted by COVID nineteen than the average person. Well, I, I'm one of those people, and so. Uh, i i've led for you know this is in the last five six months whatever it's been a, a very secluded life um, which makes the fall very interesting as to what happens with football and um, if we have football how do i travel what do my assignments look like uh, how much more careful do i have to be than i have been in the past and i've been pretty careful in the past with a big mask and you know wipes and, and all that kind of good stuff and avoiding people so uh, so that's what it it, it brings into question. It also brings into question, you know, for ESPN and Fox and CBS and everybody else, how how do we cover live games? Uh, Do we have our broadcasters actually there on location? Do we have them in the studio? Uh, Do we have fans there? And if we don't have fans, how do we cover the game? College football is filled with uh, the pageantry, the bands, the fans, the reaction and the like. And what is it when all that's gone? Is it just professional football on TV at that point? So, you know, we're, we're working through all those things now. I'm working through all that with the folks at ESPN to see what that looks like, what it looks like uh, for me. Um, I'm, I'm hoping college football comes back, but I don't want it to come back where people are at risk. Um, and right now we seem to be uh, in a worse place with the pandemic than we were uh, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago. Um, so that all scares me and worries me Um, so I'm not sure uh, it's the healthiest thing to do it seems like we're trying to thread the eye of a hurricane and and get through it unscathed uh, which may not seem possible my my gut reaction is that we're we're probably likely to to start the season um, in some conferences maybe all conferences because I think uh, the, the financial impact is so critical for so many that the conferences are determined to give it a try. I don't know that we can get very far other than starting the season. Uh, if you look at Major League Baseball and the NFL and camps and things, uh, you know, you don't get a great feeling about the ability to go very long. But that, that's my sense. What, what's your sense?
2: You know, I'm hopeful. Uh, I'm optimistic, but I'm also realistic as well. And it's a good thing. We'll get to the schedule here in a second that that there actually is a schedule here right now. I'm glad to see it. I just don't have any real 100 anywhere near 100% confidence that it's certainly not going to finish on time. I don't think at at this point, I mean, November and getting into December might be pipe dreams at this point. And I am, I'm right there with you as far as uh, perhaps getting started on time, maybe not necessarily for, for the reasons that I would prefer because let's face it, the financial component, you know, rules, everything about this. Uh, So I, I I think things are going to start on time, but I am not anywhere near as optimistic about the the sport uh, getting anywhere near uh, towards a finish. Speaking of the start, the Pac-12 issuing a schedule on Friday, September 26th, scheduled to be opening day. Stanford's supposed to open at Washington, up in Seattle, uh, USC, UCLA getting going early, the Territorial Cup being held early. And Stanford with a heck of a start to its schedule, Washington to start at Arizona State, USC at home, bye-bye, and then at Cal with big game being played on October the 24th. Uh, you took a look at the Pac-12 schedule, the Stanford schedule. What were some of your knee-jerk reactions? Well, my first thought was
1: this is nice uh, for two reasons. One, I'm, I'm glad that Pac-12 pushed it back. Um, I thought having some time and flexibility was a smart thing to do, and you see other conferences kind of followed suit. Uh, the, my second reaction was, it's really the pandemic schedule, isn't it? Yeah. The pandemic is going to determine whether we have a schedule and what that schedule looks like. And that, that was my second reaction. Um, uh, I, I think in terms of if you are purely a Stanford fan and you want what's best for Stanford, um, starting on the road at Washington is not ideal, but if you have to play Washington, uh, playing them when they're breaking in a new head coach and a new quarterback uh, is as good as it possibly gets. Uh, when you have a veteran quarterback and you've got some veteran guys on the offensive line um, and receivers, uh, that can be a really loud and ugly, nasty place to play. Uh, probably not gonna have bad weather when you open there. So all those things are sort of like, well, that that's the best. If you're gonna have to plan, that's the time uh, to probably play them or so. Um, you know, I it, the schedule, you start looking at what's initially lined up and you ask yourself, is that really gonna be there? Uh, who knows? I like the idea that, um, you know, they don't play USC week two of the season as we've seen uh, quite a bit in the past. Uh, I think they match up well with USC. I think it's a little tougher when uh, they haven't gotten a couple games under their belt. Um, So, I mean, that's sort of my initial reaction. I think Arizona state's going to be really, really good. Mm -hmm. Um, So it is a tough start to the season. Uh, There is a buy, assuming we get those three games in, you get a buy at that point. And a chance to reassess. Um, But like I said, it's it's the pandemic schedule and what happens after that. I will say this. Every time I see the big game someplace other than November, I always (laughs) kind of cringe and go, come
2: on. You know,
1: really, it really isn't the big game when it's not played in November. But that's just me.
2: I I could extend it even further and say it's not really a big game unless it's played at 12.30 p.m. on the Saturday before Thanksgiving. I'd even extrapolate it out that far.
1: (laughs) I am with you. I am with you. That works for me.
2: <laughs> you're, you're, you're you're an old cornerback, um, and there's certainly a lot of talent when it comes to Stanford football, I think, at that position this upcoming season. Paul Snadibo, uh, probably the most highly decorated player in uh, the preseason honors, and rightfully so. A lot to like from Caillou Blue Kelly, and I think there's a lot from Jonathan McGill in the nickel spot as well. Uh, when you see these corners that that Stanford can throw out that, at, at, at teams, what do you see, and how critical are they going to be in helping the whole? things down for Stanford defense in in your estimation
1: they're a whole new breed man (laughs) (laughs) they're a whole new breed of corners i mean you know back in the day you know we we had you know fast feisty you know tough corners uh but what they're doing now is these long athletic guys who have all the, the quickness and the speed but the the thing you get with that length is the ability to get your hands on a receiver uh, whether you're in zone coverage or man, press man, and to redirect and to disrupt him, that length really, really helps you. Um, and, you know, whether you're talking about Adebo or Caillou Blue, uh, those are guys who have it. Um, they use it well. Uh, it's, it's sort of the, the model that they recruit to now. Uh, they have a lot of depth. And in this day and age, you can't survive uh, on the back end with with just two corners i mean everybody's playing three or four receivers you, you have to have five or six guys that can at least lined up and give you some man-to-man coverage or at least be able to adjust and move laterally well enough because the guy in that nickel spot the guy on the dime spot becomes the vulnerability of the defense that they go after and so stanford has enough depth uh, to handle that um the bigger issue to me on stanford really is kind of up front um, and whether they have enough bodies, uh, whether they can gener- generate enough pass rush. Um, I like the back end. I like the linebackers. Uh, but and it's fairly typical of Stanford. You know, um, we need more than one dominant defense alignment, or we need to have several guys mm-hmm. who can hold their own. And we don't need to be stuck with one or two guys trying to play 70 snaps. We, we have to keep those guys fresh. We have to have six guys who can get in there and play at the very least. So I think that's your issue on the back end. This is a better team than four and eight from last season. Um, This is a team that uh, I think could be really explosive on offense. Uh, Fajoko, Wilson, outside have chances to have tremendous games. Uh, They're healthy at the offensive line spot, you know, um, I mean, little Walker, uh, Walker Little looks like he's going to be, you know, uh, great and ready to go. So I, I think, I think this is an offense that could surprise people and be one of the top offenses in the, in the conference. And, you know, Davis mill certainly uh, cut his, uh, his chops last year and, and made everyone, you know, look forward to 2020 and, uh, and 2021 if we don't have 2020, I think uh, he's, he's a guy that's, that's going to be uh, highly sought after, I should say, or high, high possible pick.
2: Let's hope so because Davis mill certainly is going to be a key to the uh, Stanford uh, fortunes, especially offensively. I can't wait. And it's it, just the depth at the wide receiver spot. It's not just two or three guys. I mean, look, as great as it was in the late nineties, when it was Troy Walters and Dave Davis and Durani Pitts, there's, like five or six dudes Stanford can throw out there. love Michael Wilson, love Connor Weddington, big fan of, of semi-fahocon. Yeah. Yeah. It's an embarrassment of riches. It seems this year.
1: Yeah, no, it's an awful lot. And they'll be able to do to other teams. What I was talking about uh, as teams attack Stanford defensively, usually most teams have two corners that can play man coverage. And so, uh, when when you have more than two receivers out there, you, you've you got an easy target somewhere. And you pretty much know if they aren't confident in their, their man coverage, then you're going to get a zone coverage. And it, it, it picks up a little bit easier. So it's a little easier to deal with. I think that core will give Davis Mills an opportunity to complete a high percentage uh, of passes. I think he's going to have a tremendous year. I think he'll be better protected, quite mm-hmm. honestly, too. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the ball will come out a lot faster for them. So um, who knows what the schedule ultimately is going to wind up looking like. Uh, clearly, Oregon is going to be the favorite um, in the north. Um, you know, Washington will be tough. If California Dolphins uh, rolls around, uh, they're a contender. But I like where Stanford uh, sits. And in the south, it's, it's, it's clearly Arizona State, USC, and, and Utah. Those are the three that is my view right now. Uh, assuming everybody's healthy and assuming that we don't have uh, more key players drop out as we're starting to see across the country, some key players are opting out Mm -hmm. of this season because of COVID-19. We haven't seen a key PAC 12 player uh, do that yet. Uh, But should that happen, that will have a tremendous impact on a team's uh, fortune. I don't think we're going to see quarterbacks opt out. Um, That's a position of leadership and it's, a little bit hard for a quarterback to opt out because of COVID-19 and then go into the NFL interviews and say, I'm ready to be the face of a franchise sure. and I'll be your team leader. I, sure. I think that's, that's, that's a tough one. So we've already seen um, Rashad Bateman in Minnesota, likely first-round pick. It's a wide receiver. Um, and Caleb Farby out of uh, Virginia Tech, uh, defensive back, likely first-round pick. Guys like that, wouldn't surprise me if we saw some more of those guys uh, opt out because of COVID-19, I'd be shocked to find quarterbacks say uh, he's not going to play.
2: couple last things here for you. You played Stanford football. Late 70s, early 80s. I remember one day bumping around YouTube and I stumbled across an original broadcast of Stanford versus Arizona State. 1979, Keith Jackson on the call for ABC in Stanford with a big win that day. John Elway, that guy running around and playing quarterback. Obviously a very intriguing era for Stanford football. How would you describe your era on the farm?
1: Well, it was certainly fun, certainly exciting. And um I don't know, a little bit um, uh, frustrating because we were incredibly talented and I think we all felt like we should have had a lot more success uh, and we certainly felt like there should have been more bowl games um, for us. And I think to a man, uh, we sort of felt responsible that John John didn't win the Heisman, uh, that he was the best player in the country. Now some people will say, oh no, Herschel Walker was clearly gonna be the best player in the country. Uh, we, we didn't think so uh, and we thought John was by far the best player in the country and should have won the Heisman and, and our lack of team success, you know, particularly that final season and that, you know, the game ending with the five laterals that they call the play that thing uh, that fiasco uh, didn't help his his case at all. So I felt like had we won a couple more games and gotten to a bowl game that year, uh, John probably would have won uh, the Heisman. So we just uh, we felt like, you know, we didn't finish the mission on that front and to have played with a talent like that, a guy like that, and not have the kind of team success that, that we should have had uh, was frustrating. But, um, you know, those years of playing with guys like, like that, and, you know, great receivers, Kenny Marjoram and Andre Tyler, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Playing,
2: yeah, y'all had some receivers uh, too. Playing
1: with Darren Nelson and Vincent White. Uh, playing with the linebacker like Gordy Saracino, uh, you know all these guys. I mean, it's just it was just an incredible time. Uh, you know, Garen Varris is you know my my favorite all-time defensive lineman because man, I, I love nothing more than see him seeing him get to the quarterback and and making my job easier. So um, <laughs> yeah, it was a great time. Great friends from that era. Uh, nothing's changed on that front, but uh, uh, we were we were able to have, as you can tell from that Arizona State video in 1979, we were allowed to get a little physical and feisty at times. You know, so there might have been a time until of the officials had to say to me, uh, calm down a little bit, Twink. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the way the game's played has changed a little bit, hasn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was a little bit more anything kind of goes back then, and now, uh, now, now it's a little bit more, uh, maybe we should say, Uh, not as much contact as we had back then, but then the entire game has changed. I mean, it's more wide open kind of basketball on grass. Back then, you know, your toughness was challenged every single play. And if they felt like, um, you know, you weren't a tough guy and wouldn't stick your nose in there. um, All all I know is that here come two pulling offensive linemen, you know, on a power sweep Mm -hmm. to see, Hey, can this cornerback uh, really hold up for this stuff? So you got tested
2: a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, no doubt about that. Uh, as we wrap this up, I'm not going to ask you for a prediction uh, because you it's noticed. just pointless yeah. right now. It's, it's, look, it's, it's a foolish exercise even during normal uh, circumstances. Right. This year, forget about it. But I, I will ask you this. In your mind, what would dictate a successful season for Stanford? At the end of this season, assuming everything gets played or at least a lot of it gets played, what would it take for you to consider and what do you think it would take for David Shaw to consider things a success for Stanford this year?
1: Well, I think four and eight last season was an aberration. Uh, I mean, David Shaw has done a tremendous job with this program and has had a history of uh, winning teams and bowl teams. If we have anything resembling uh, a normal season of a 10 of a game season or a nine game season, uh, I would expect that um, Stanford's going to have a winning record and be a bowl team. Uh, and contend uh, in the North. I, I, I think anything less than that, I think David and everyone else would regard that as, as disappointing. Um, there's no denying that Oregon is loaded and there's no denying uh, that, you know, the schedule, the way it falls for Oregon is pretty nice. Uh, but I don't see any reason why this race uh, in the North shouldn't come down to Stanford uh, and Oregon, all things being equal. Uh, if Stanford stays healthy, and that's always been the key. If they stay healthy with their offense, I think they're right there uh, in the North. So I would say a, you know, a bowl game, I, I can't predict a, uh, a North uh, championship with Oregon sitting there with their, presumably their health uh, right now. Uh, but anything other than that, I, I, I'd i say would be successful being in the hunt there. Clearly uh, a 500 season, no one's going to be happy with that. Least of all, David Shaw, uh, there's enough, enough talent on this team uh, assuming that the help holds true, um, this is a really good team with a chance to surprise. And I'm not the only one who feels that way. Phil Steele, the 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 guy bi- who presents the Bible of college football, has Stanford listed as his surprise team uh, for this year. So um, I like to be in that company.
2: <laughs> yeah. Hey, Phil was on the show last month and he said, hey, I, I, I give Stanford 20, 25% chance of doing really big things this year. And I was like, okay, all right, Phil, like how you think. Take that. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: Yeah. No, I, I, I feel good about them. If they stay healthy, I feel
2: good about them. Ah, it's a big if, but if they can, if they can accomplish that, certainly a big things are within reach for Stanford this upcoming season. Hopefully it all goes off on time, safely and responsibly. And one guy who's going to be there to chronicle every single bit of it, not just from the Pac-12 standpoint, but nationwide as well, Rod Gilmore. Rod, always appreciate the time. Thanks a bunch. Looking for the next chance to cross paths, and we'll talk again soon. Absolutely.
1: Thanks for having me on, Troy. Good to see you,
2: pal. Our thanks again to Rod Gilmore for uh, joining us uh, on the show. And, uh, yeah, I, I'd, I'd like to see it. I'd like to see it. That's going to be a heck of a start for Stanford if that slate is played as scheduled at Washington, at Arizona State. Um, you know, Although catching Washington up there might not be a bad time early in the season given some uncertainties they have up there. Then USC and Cal. That's a heck of a start for your first four games. Offensive better get busy. had better make some big plays. But could it all be leading up to November 28th at Eugene versus the Oregon Ducks? I hope so. I wouldn't mind seeing that one single bit. Good to talk to Rod Gilmore and get his thoughts on that and everything else. (laughs) And really, he played at an interesting time at Stanford. Late 70s, early 80s, graduating in 82, playing uh, the 82 season as well. Um, That was an interesting time. That was a real colorful time. And I think You know, even though the wins weren't necessarily there, I still think that it seems that most people who were there to witness it look back on that time pretty fondly. I mean, why not? Yeah, John Elway, man. Young John Elway, doing big things. And, you know, Rod brought this up. I had kind of forgotten the receivers that John had to throw to back in those days. Those were some dudes, too. And... If you, if you do stumble across, if you do find, find yourself in a YouTube rabbit hole, we've all been there before. And you come across that original broadcast, the original uh, ABC broadcast of uh, Stanford, Arizona State, 1979, and you get to see Turk Schoner doing his thing for much of that game and helping to lead Stanford to a big win that day over the Sun Devils with Keith Jackson on the call. Turk Schoner, <laughs> very underrated quarterback. In, in, in Stanford football history. And uh, I remember seeing uh, how after 1979 big game, which came down to one final play at the very end, the Cal's goal line that unfortunately did not go Stanford's way. Um, after the game, Turk Schoner, the Stanford quarterback, was answering questions and speaking to the media while drinking a Coors and leaning against a white Camaro in the stadium parking lot. If that doesn't say 1979, I don't know what does. But just that visual image of Dirk Schoner talking to the media while drinking a beer and leaning against a white Camaro just, I think, kind of tells you everything you need to know about just how unique that era of Stanford football was. Would have loved to have gotten a couple more wins, maybe get the bowl game out of it, give get, get John Elway a Heisman out of it, as Rod mentioned. Uh, so there was you know some disappointment, to be sure, tinged with some sadness. To be sure, especially the way that era ended. But again, most folks I know who were there to witness it and see it live and in person, uh, they they still they still seem to agree that that time that that era of Stanford football was still still pretty darn cool, still pretty cool. You want to respond to anything that Rod Gilmore and I talked about? I always welcome it. Hashtag TreeCast via Twitter, hashtag TreeCast, the best way for me to see your thoughts. The Believe Podcast Network, upwards of 300 shows. Holy cow, they've really expanded since we started this thing in early March. They were only at like, what, 200, I think, uh, when we started this thing. So exponential growth for the Believe Podcast Network. Glad that uh, they have given this show a home. They're happy with how things are going. I'm happy overall with how things are going too. Would love to see more listeners. If you love the show, tell a friend, tell everybody about it. If you don't like the show, hey, tell me about it. Let me know what I can do to make it better for you. But no matter what, tell everyone about the show. Respond, react, rate, and review the program. And uh, be sure to check us out no matter where you get your favorite podcast from. And we will see you again next week. Special thanks to our guests, John Platts, Stanford men's basketball color analyst and Stanford football sideline reporter on the Cardinal Sports Network, encyclopedic knowledge. Look, when I was trying to figure out the last time that Stanford had uh, three uh, different starting quarterbacks in the course of one season, who do you think I turned to? John Platts. And it was 1974, by the way. Thanks to him for joining us and breaking down Tyrell Terry going to the NBA and a big time thanks to Rod Gilmore for joining us on the show as well. Biggest thanks of all goes out to you for checking us out. Don't drink and drive if you do. You're the dumbest person on the planet. As dumb as the person who does not wear a mask in this day and age. Wear a mask. It's that simple. That's all you got to do. Mask it or casket. Been saying that for weeks. We'll see you next time. Thanks for checking us out. On the TreeCast with Troy Clarity, presented by the Believe Podcast Network.
0: Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies.